I'm Gus from Alt-J, and I play keyboards in the band. For this episode of Things Will Get Better, Joe, Tom and I interviewed our dear friend and former bandmate, Will Sainsbury. As you can imagine, we were eager to hear what he remembers from our days at university and to get his recollections of our first recordings and performances. Here's how that went. Hello, mate. How's it going, Will? Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks so much for doing this. I think we're just hoping to turn the clock back by 10, 11 years and talk about the, um, well, I guess the origins of the band and, and how we came to make that first album, really. We were in a class together, weren't we, in first year at Leeds? Do you remember that? Story of art. Yeah, story of art. What were your first memories of meeting, let's say, us, well, us three at university, I guess? Not necessarily impressions, but just circumstances, shall we say? Circumstances, well, me, Joe and Tom were on the same final course in the same year as for freshers. I don't remember actually hanging out with Tom that much in first year because he had a lot on. I think Joe and I ended up working on some of Joe's tracks, some proper folky tracks, I think in the summer of first year when everyone went home and we recorded some stuff then. So I don't know, my first impressions of Joe was kind of like, oh, I've never actually met anyone that can write a song. <laughs> so, uh, right? It was like, oh, he can, he can do this. Because, you know, as a student, you kind of come across a lot of people that do music and it's a bit like, and what, you know? Yeah. No, everyone's struggling to work out how to do that. I think Joe was already doing stuff that was like, oh, wow, that's pretty amazing. So I think I um, wanted to work with Joe. And then when I heard Tom play drums, it was like, oh, wow. I mean, I like, I still seriously rate Tom as one of the best drummers in the world. <laughs> so it was really cool. I just thought that was like, I don't know, probably felt inadequate, if anything. Obviously, Gus, we met through different circumstances, both doing a story of art. And I think we were just in the same seminar I don't know what signifiers we were putting off, but I think that we were just both like, yeah, we're on the same wavelength. Were you friends completely separate to the connection I had with Gus at um, Halls? Yeah, I think so. At least for the first no, few I months. No, I, I think I knew that you knew each other. Oh. Yes. We knew we knew each other, but we don't think we hung out or anything No, like that I don't think so. Together. No. But um, you sat next to each other. We sat next to each other, which was nice. <laughs> I think also, Gwil, my memory of you also, when we first started hooking up, was that you had been in a band when you were doing your foundation course in Falmouth. You played bass in that band. So I think for me, I was aware that you'd had some prior experience in uh, kind of the live music scene mm, that yeah. I found quite interesting to sort of pursue ideas with you. What was your band called? Called The Shallows. And we were based, I mean, purely kind of like um, a spin-off band from The Horrors. Yeah. Okay. In, in the sense that, like a tribute band almost. Well, just kind of like, I think maybe we found it easy to emulate. Well, there was something about it that we could do as pretty awful musicians. So it was like, okay, that's doable. We can do that sound and like that's pretty in right now. So that'll be cool. I think it was pretty um, undeveloped. <laughs> is there any Shallows music online anywhere? I think there is on MySpace. And what, well, does, is MySpace? I think MySpace has gone down, uh, it's hit, it's a black hole. But, you know, I think I do have hard copies on that same hard drive that I found. Oh, you do? Old, old, oh, I do, but I didn't even take it off it. I, was, <laughs> I didn't even listen to it. I think I was like, I'll leave that. You had a song I'll called Tina. Had, yeah, that was the, that's what's on there. Yeah, yeah. I, I so. always, I, I, I can't. Tina! Yeah. Didn't the horrors of a song called Sheena? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> look, this stuff, was, this stuff was outrageously, you know. There was no kind of like, oh, we'll pretend we're doing our own thing. It was pure emulation. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
I was saying the same thing to the other day about listening to Joe playing demos and stuff and being quite amazed that I was in a room with somebody who could write a song, I think. So you and Joe did a few... That was when the garage band kind of time started, wasn't it, for you, for you two on your own? And you had a MacBook, so you were kind of the de facto producer for the band, weren't you, for a few years? Yes, yeah, like, I mean, I remember saving up for a MacBook just so I could use GarageBand. And being so ignorant, I didn't know, even though I could just get a PC and get some other software. Yeah, <laughs> software. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. didn't even know that was possible. And it's interesting to go back through, when I was looking for those first old J recordings, I found a couple of the actual GarageBand files. And... It's amazing to look at it because, I mean, every single track was clipping. <laughs> I, didn't even, I didn't even know what clipping was. Do you know what I mean? If I wanted to go louder, just put it further into the red. So really clueless stuff, but they're also pretty interesting. They are interesting, yeah. yeah. Um, so we went back to Ash Grove in Leeds recently, which was actually, we had a whole walk around. We did like a two-hour walk around Hyde Park and, and stuff. You know, the kind of highlight was probably going to Ash Grove and it was, it was amazing. Like, all the inhabitants were in which was really nice. I think for some reason, I just kind of assumed like one or two of them would be around, but they, they'd all kind of like, I don't know, cancelled their plans or skipped their yeah. lectures or whatever. It was quite, it was quite yeah. sweet, wasn't it? I think a lot of them were on the cusp of finishing their degrees. So some had finished and some had not, but yeah. there was still this energy in the flat where I think they were ready to mm. go hard. But there was no Pope drawing on the back of the blind. Sadly not, the no. Pope drawing had gone. It was very disappointing. Because it was definitely there for a few years because I know some other people that end up living there. Oh, really? And it was, I knew someone that had that room, yeah, had Joe's room and the Pope. I know that was definitely there, like, maybe, like, four years afterwards. Wow. So what were the first songs that you and Joe worked on that, you know, you really thought, like, I want to be part of that song? Was it Hiroshima? Did you have, did you have that early on? I, I think it probably was Hiroshima. That was a very early I remember song. I played that to you, and I think there was other people in the room, and it was in the kind of communal space of the Hall's residence you were living in at the time, which was called Carmel's. And Carmel's was a nightmare because there was no ventilation or windows that could be opened. It was this huge greenhouse with this massive slab of window. And so the sun would just heat up the kitchen and it was brutal. I think your dad said it was based on sort of um, probation sort of housing blueprints or something. Well, that's actually the houses that we lived in, St. Mark's. They were based on... Yeah, they were based on um, sort of like category C prisons or something. (laughs) But yeah, I remember playing it to you and I was nervous about it because like I wasn't fully convinced by the song, but there was enough there where I felt the need to play it to you. And um, I think that was kind of a make or break moment for me in terms of like, if you'd been like, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got something there, but I mean, you know, you should really be focusing on fine art. I mean... (laughs) You know, if you'd said something like that, I would have probably, I would have taken anything you said and done that because I was so vulnerable. Like if you'd been like, you should probably get into being, I don't know, uh, social care. I would have probably gone down that route or a binman or something. I would have done anything you told me at that moment because I was really fucking fragile. Yeah, it was definitely, I think you definitely had a lot of insecurity around it. I mean, like, you know, who doesn't? Yeah, no, exactly. Getting out a guitar and singing in front of some other people, that's a scary thing to do. But I, yeah, I definitely didn't think that you realised that you were good. I knew what I wanted to be and I didn't think I was there yet. But I think playing songs to you helped me, sort of guided me in the right direction of maybe thinking maybe I was better than uh, my only critic, which was myself, was telling me. So, yeah, I remember playing that to you and you were really receptive to that song. And Yeah, I think you said something and I can't recall what you said. It was just very brief, but it was like... You maybe even just said, I don't know, like, wow or something. You said something and I remember it being like really was like a catalyst in sort of me thinking, oh, maybe I should keep doing what I'm doing. Because I spent like eight years up until that point trying to write a song. 
and really never feeling as though I could do it. So I think I remember what I said. I think I said what's really interesting about the way that you're writing songs is they really feel like alive and like they've got like a little soul. I think that's what I said. Because it really felt like it had been crafted. And I think that's what I wasn't getting, you know, if you've met other students that were doing music, whatever. It's kind of didn't nothing with someone so showed you a song, it never really felt crafted and honed into like a shape. Yeah, authentic as well. I and authentic, yeah. Because I think that's the other thing is that, I mean, sure, there is a bit of um, Mockney accent going on in some of those early recordings. Yeah, yeah. But it can maybe in comparison to what other people in my halls were doing, which was like singing in an American accent or something. Do you know what I mean? Like it felt authentic. That was it. For me, it was just material that reeked of struggle, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And I was just at battle with trying to write the way I wanted to write and not ever getting there. And then uh, playing it to you guys, I think, over time, like Hiroshima and and Portrait, and then just the responses that I got from you, both sort of like commentary and and, and musical, was um, enough for me to be like, oh, wow, this is going to sound so much better with these guys by my side doing this. I think it was such an exciting explosion, I think. I also remember always being like, particularly when it came to like recording with Garage Band, it always being like a very exciting thing to be doing. Mm. Yeah. Like it wasn't like it got to the end of the day and we, or we had band practice, we were going to record something and it was like, <sighs> I'm tired and I can't really. I remember always just being like, yeah, doing this, loving it. Couldn't believe what we were doing. I think being constantly surprised by what we were doing was, was the main part. Yeah, it felt easy. Yeah. Yeah, and it did feel easy. There was something very, it just flowed. And we were writing worlds that we were fully invested in and competent at creating very quickly as well. And I think that was really exciting, knowing that you could put things down on GarageBand. Tom could probably come up with a drum part in about 10 minutes. And then Gus could do it all together with his keyboards and you with your guitar part. And these songs that I'd been working on for that week prior to us meeting, it was so, it's like... I don't think I've found that anywhere else where it's like a blank canvas and you know exactly what you want to do. And though we weren't consciously being like, it needs to sound like this, we just were running off everyone's input, which was perfect to a large degree because there was, I don't know, I think it was just a very nice environment to create ideas in. I think if you were to, particularly seeing other student bands at that time, I think one thing that I, I really always felt separated us was we always took it in turns as musicians to um, move the song along. You know, if you saw a lot of other student bands, like the two guitarists just turning their amps up so they're louder than the other. Do you know what I mean? And just, and just shredding. Just, just technically, you know, technically really good stuff I can't do, but just no space in the music whatsoever and not really letting each, each instrument breathe. Whereas I felt we were always pretty like locked in to what each other were doing. Yeah, it's true. It's true, actually, isn't it? I think, yeah, even if you listen to like those demos of Hiroshima and stuff, yeah, there's like, it, there's, everybody's got little things they want to do at certain points, and we're all kind of letting each other do it, and it's all, it's... it's. But there's a lot of space. There's a lot of space, yeah, mm. it's true. And that's something that I think we, we did a lot in the studio with Charlie, you know, that Charlie was very good at doing, but I think he identified that in our music and brought it out more. I think it's something that we'd actually already instinctively kind of taught, learned to do amongst ourselves, wasn't it? Was create that space. yeah. The root of our understanding of what makes the song a good song was knowing that we had to care about the song, not about our parts. Mm. And I think that's something that we were very good at doing unconsciously. And in so doing that, it gave us time to enjoy each of our parts at a point in that song, like Hiroshima, for example. Mm. So yeah, so second year came along, Tom and I joined the setup and 
we did our first gig. Um, what do you remember about that? In the living room, in, in our living room. I remember being really, really nervous. Almost like, you know, that scene in Eight Mile Nervous. Yeah. Just like <laughs> na- na- nauseous. Do you know what I mean? Like, am I going to be sick? I remember being very shaky. My hands being very shaky. But I think, I remember just, because we were playing to our friends. It was a gig in our living room to our university friends and people knew we'd been away doing this, but no one had really heard it right. Or maybe they heard a couple of recordings. So they felt like there was quite a lot of pressure to impress our friend group, our friendship group. But as far as I remember, they loved it. <laughs> as far as I can remember. I remember one of the uh, audience members was a friend of ours, um, Ollie, and he was famous for kind of like any, any praise from him was blood from a stone. I remember after the gig, I was just like, oh, did you enjoy the gig? And he was just like, yeah, it was good. <laughs> and that meant everything because mm. I don't think I'd ever received a compliment from him before. And, and you know, subsequent to, to that happening, he's, he's never said anything about the albums other than just be like, Orche is shit, as a joke. <laughs> um, Classic. To this day, I think that that was probably one of our most successful shows we've ever played. Yeah. because <laughs> yeah. no one knew about us and we completely surprised everyone. <laughs> there was a sense that we were... Because, like, yeah, the, the, I think a lot of people probably go to a gig, you know, somewhat excited, but equally probably rolling their eyes because it's a student band and, like, how many student bands make mm. it? And, like, everyone has five friends at five different universities in a band, you know, and it kind of, like, famously goes nowhere. So I think... The songs we played to them at the time, I think, really shook them up in a nice way. It seemed like that from the reaction that we received after the show. And, um, okay, so, like, I mean, I guess there was, you know, we had a few years in, in Leeds where we were doing loads and loads of band practice. And something that sort of occurs to me now is, like, I think we did band practice pretty religiously three times a week. Is that right? That's pretty much how I remember it, two or three times a week. Definitely I, two, I think. Yeah. 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 Like, maybe your sometimes. bedroom, then we moved to... Your bedroom? It was the basement uh, yeah. where I lived with Mike yeah. and Julian. Was that, that when Will came back? Yeah, that was after. There was that a year, was a there was a, in third year, it was a we, bit, we were a bit nomadic, weren't we? Yeah, that was where you shared with like those... We did, yeah, they, yeah, at the top, my yeah. bedroom at the top. That's where we worked on Breeze Blocks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you with, well. It was quite a, it was a bit of a... It was just like, yeah, personality clashes, like yeah. classic, like student housing. Like, yeah. And... They were all studying the same degree at a different university. And so it was a bit odd sometimes. We would practice and have to keep it really, really quiet. But again, like we, I think we've said this in interviews and stuff before, like that discipline, I think, is a very, very good thing. It gave, yeah. us, it gave us something which you can't aim for. Like it, it just, it was a quality that we have through something that was out of our control, which yeah. I think benefited us a lot. It, it certainly, for me, whether it was two or three times a week, it was like the highlight of my week. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even see it as a labour in any way. It just was this thing. I was just like, I couldn't wait to get to next practice and start like maybe working on an idea that we had sort of roughed out the week before or whether I'd written something in between those period of times. And we were kind of sailing down this completely unique avenue where we didn't have anyone telling us what to do or guiding us or critiquing us. It was the ultimate goal that I'm sure every tutor at fine art wants their student to find, which is they're doing their own thing and they're not waiting for a prescribed sort of uh, management package from themselves to Mm. sort of like, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because, yeah, to look at it on a calendar, if you put them all in on a calendar, it'd be like, oh, they really are quite disciplined. 
but I definitely never like I don't have this with music so much anymore I don't really remember it back then it was like it was just so exciting to be doing it whereas nowadays I'm a bit like oh I've got to go and work on that and I'll still procrastinate it because I sort of it's not the same it's not quite the same thing yeah and just having nothing else to do oh so nice just the thought of that now the thought of having two or three evenings a week where I could just like do that, you know, with like how my life is now in terms of like family and trying, you know, trying to like see friends or trying to do something like play five-a-side football. It's just like thought of just being like, yeah, yeah, so three nights a week, yeah. I go over to Will's bedroom and we work on yeah. music. It's like, yeah. oh my God. There was beer involved though. There was, I there do was. I think that was... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is it. It was, it was a social thing as well, wasn't stones. it? Stones, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it was very stones, stones, and bacon, bacon, stones, stones frazzles, frazzles, before they changed yeah. the recipe. And yeah. then, um, it was actually stones for his own frazzles we used to get, I think. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think it was also funny how, thinking about us practicing in bedrooms and stuff, how people who we lived with used to get, I think, quite frustrated by that. Brass practicing in the house, and I think part looking back on that part of me is like, well, didn't you realise that we were actually quite a good band, and you should have? But also, we've we we were also quite we were also quite in a way, it's quite entitled to think that you should be you could be sharing someone's house and be like, yeah, 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 and we're just going to bring up drums and amps and a keyboard and and set up and do band practice. Like, well, this is a house, not a rehearsal space. Yeah, but like you know, that house was a bit of a house party as well. So I felt like it was fair game to have like a few nights a week just rehearsing for a few hours. That was part of it, I think, as well. Like, just I think getting student. on with everyone that lived there. I, I, I love going around there a lot. Like, mm. I, I, most of the people there were on the same, were doing fine art, and so I already knew them. It was just fun. Like, it was just so much fun going over yeah. and hanging out and then getting to write music and getting that like dopamine or whatever from playing together in that environment. And, you know, like Gus said, like the lifestyle of like basically doing what you want, like it really <laughs> was great. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and the youthfulness of the possibilities of it. I think there's such a perfect combination of things and it's yeah. very, very fond memories. The other thing about listening to some of the recordings, particularly the ones that I think maybe just recorded like on an iPhone or something, you know, where it's really just like, well, that sounds pretty trash, but it's, it's nice because what's quite consistent throughout all of it is we're really not taking ourselves that seriously. We're always kind of like on the edge of giggles. There's always sort of like someone saying some comment or something. Yeah. There's a lack of seriousness to it that I think made it quite playful. Well, I think we always knew where the line was for, with seriousness and um, just enjoying ourselves. And that was a testament to our friendship and I think, again, our sense of humour. I've, men I've mentioned it before. Well, I think the fact that we all enjoyed each other's company and we all made each other laugh, I think that was the foundations of um, understanding where the line was, sort of uh, humour and earnest, playing in earnestness as well, playing in earnest. In a way, I think, like, it was you You went away to Berkeley for a year. I mean, how was that for you, Will? Because that was kind of your, I don't know, it was, it was sort of, I think there was no doubt that we were going to carry on with the band and no doubt that you were going to rejoin the band when you came back. But it was still a big thing when we'd only been a band for a year at that point, hadn't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. What did you go and do? You went and buggered off. Went, yeah, went and did a study abroad year. And I suppose on that year, I first got Logic. Like, I moved from Garage Band to Logic. I think that's what was happening. And so I spent a lot of time with a mate there who was also making ele electronic music, just doing that, really. And occasionally listening to demos that you sent me through. But I think I spent time just working out how you do music on the computer. I think I spent most of my time doing that. And then you came back, and that was, that was, that was the year during which like, a few songs like Breeze Blocks kind of came about, wasn't it? And Yeah, I think that was the period of time where the writing really went up a level. When, when Gwil... When I left. Yeah, when Gwil <laughs> left. 
when he went to Berkeley. I, in a way, I think it was it was correlating to you not being there because I think we had to step up, and I think I kind of committed to writing more so because you were like essentially for me, and at that time you were like a founding member, and um, I thought the band was in jeopardy because obviously you know you can't keep people in a band if they don't want to be in a band and 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 I think your plans to go to Berkeley meant that I didn't know how focused you were on the band for the next couple of years when in my head I'd invested I think I may have even invested like a five-year plan post-university and so you going meant that I had to really step up and and, and basically give you a, a reason to want to come back and I think I may have unconsciously written better songs because you'd gone and like Breeze Blocks, Tessellate, mm-hmm. I think Matilda. Well, we did Matilda. I was, was just going to say, we did Matilda with Charlie just before Gwill went away. It was really good that we did that, I think, because I think that was such an, an incredible experience for all of us. And it was yeah. like, we went to London, we met Charlie, we spent three days working on recording one track, and we came out of it with what to us, well, a track that ended up on the first album, basically, Unchanged. So it was, you know, like a professionally recorded song. And I think that was like, had we not done that, that was in a way like giving you something to remember us by. <laughs> you know what I mean? Kind of like, okay, come back and we can do more of that when you're back. Although I don't like that recording of Matilda. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Revelation. You finally got some, something I juicy. Don't, I feel like I was pretty honest about it. I felt that it changed a lot and it got too ballady. But I clearly know nothing because it was our sort of break first breakthrough radio thing, wasn't it? I thought it didn't actually sound like us. But I think that is probably wrapped up in the fact until that point We'd done all of our own recordings, and that was the first time we went to someone else. And they did things in a different way. Uh, yeah, obviously, a much better way. <laughs> obviously, much better. But I also remember being like, wow, this isn't the song that we sort of came in with. It has changed quite a lot. It's interesting. What do you remember about going down to London to record with Charlie then, other than not liking Matilda, obviously? <laughs> <laughs> I remember really enjoying it. I remember being so impressed by the studio. Just really, it was incredible. It just felt like a massive step to be working with a producer. It was everything we could have wanted a, a London studio to be like, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Beautiful converted warehouse, yeah. open plan, loft. It was just like, you know, I didn't dare yeah. to dream I would ever be anywhere that cool. Yeah, I don't think you could find another, a studio like that in London now. No. <laughs> everything hadn't been as exploited at that point. And it, it's just kind of shocking to think back and think that Charlie at that point in his career was in a space like that. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's kind yeah. of space I'd die for now, do you know what I mean? And um, it was kind of like, yeah, you know, it was available. And didn't we find out that Johnny Flynn used to rehearse? Had, was he that was like his rehearsal space or something as well? We were obviously name checking Johnny Flynn in that Matilda song. I think that yeah. was like an extra kind of layer of excitement. That was very cool. Yeah. And then we came back. So once we so we kind of you know after that point, you came back from Berkeley. We all waited for you to finish our degree. During that fourth year, we was when we kind of like got some people working for us, wasn't it? And things sort of did genuinely start to happen. Yeah, and we started working with Charlie a bit more as well, right? We were going down. Not regularly, but like every now and again, we'd go down when he had some spare time, sleep on someone's floor or in their hall. Yeah, up yeah. to the point where, well, we then moved to Cambridge and then um, we went to make our album in London, staying at the Comfort Inn, which was kind of funny, for three weeks. Do you remember that? Yeah, like, so I was wondering this before, I was thinking about this, like how many songs had we recorded before we sort of made the album? I think it was like six or seven. I don't think it was that many. Really? Yeah, I thought it was five or six because I remember feeling as though we had another half to do. Yeah. We'd done Matilda, we'd done Tessellate, we'd done Breeze Blocks, 
we've done Fitz Pleasure. Handmade. And Handmade in Universal. Desolate and Blood Flood came out on Loud and Quiet, didn't they? That was our first release. That's like six. I thought it was like three. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But we lived in that hotel room for three weeks while recording with Charlie. Yeah. I remember we went out for a night in Shoreditch. Do you remember this, Tom? You had to, like, you had to walk back from Shoreditch oh, to, yeah. to Vauxhall. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Like five in the morning. Yeah, yeah. I just didn't have any option other than to walk. Yeah, I mean, what I stayed is... out. I, I think you guys had left, wasn't it? I can't remember what happened, but I ended up walking and I, I somehow got back to the hotel in one piece. And I actually quite liked the walk. It was quite <laughs> nice. Like, just it was the sun was coming up and I was seeing like people like London like waking up a bit and yeah, seeing it was. Were you, were you listening to Burial? No, I wasn't. No, so I had no... for Google Maps. I got back and it was just the best feeling in the world getting into bed, like just crawling into bed. It was just, I'd made it. And, and by that time, like any drunk feeling I'd had had completely worn off and I just sobered right up and then got into bed. I think we had, some, we had some really funny expectations. I mean, like when we first started playing live, you know, we'd turn up to a gig. I remember once we didn't even bring guitar leads. Oh, ma- Mate, many, many, many times. times than once. Many, okay. many times. We thought that they would provide guitar. Lead. And then, you know, you're doing a sound check with a local sound guy who's usually not in the best mood anyway. And he'd be like, can you just plug it into the DI box? And it'd be like, I, I don't know what a DI is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. don't know what you're talking about. I had zero understanding of any sort of like music tech stuff. Yeah, yeah, we had no money. Like, I think there's occasions where I don't have any sticks. So that's a borrow drumsticks. Yeah. Like, because I just couldn't afford to get like a nine pound pair of drumsticks. Also, just... borrow guitars as well. And I couldn't. I could not understand for the life for me why people found that hard it, pill to swallow. Yeah, like giving over their guitars. So like, funny, like sending up to a gig, yeah, playing what? your own music yeah. on someone else's guitar. Yeah, it's just like you just turned up off the street. Yeah, and being like, I want to play my music with your guitar, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what? I get paid for it. It took you a long time to come to terms with the fact that um, it would probably be wiser not to play with beer crates for your keyboards. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. I used to come to every gig and. But that was also a painful moment. Yeah. Wasn't it? Because the yeah. tour manager was basically like, you guys look like an absolute joke. Yeah. You know, your, yeah. Your, your, your keyboard's stacked up on some beer crates. <laughs> but I remember the pain. I remember it pained you, Gus, when we did replace it. That, the, it wasn't the same. No, I know. And, and it sounded look, different. It, it, it literally changed <laughs> the sound. Uh, <laughs> and so what do you... Because, you know, An Awesome Wave is obviously is the only Alt-J album that you were involved in, but it's also kind of like our classic album in a way. I mean, like, you know, you, and you make music in your own right under your own artist name, Lore and stuff. But do people want to talk to you about that kind of thing? Like Awesome Wave? Do, do you feel proud of yeah. it? I mean, do you feel... Do you know, I'd say, I'd say the main thing, actually, at weddings... Usually someone will come up to me at the wedding, they'll be like, hey, just you know, there's a couple of people here that are really quite excited that you're at the wedding. Would you mind having like a chat with them at some point? Which I quite enjoy at this stage. I can do it. I can do it. And um, you take advantage of them. Fully take advantage. <laughs> Borrow money from them. <laughs> Invoice them afterwards, obviously. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. I mean, occasionally also or not. I mean, I remember the first gig I did as law. No, maybe not the first, second one I did as law was at... Um, was for a Psytrance night in Bristol called Tribe of Frog. And the DJ that was on before me told me that he learned bass guitar from my parts on an awesome wave. Oh, wow. wow. That's cool. And he was, you know, it was a, and it was a changeover. Do you know what I mean? He was changing over to my set. Shouting and felt really like, <laughs> wow. Because, yeah, I don't know, occasionally stuff like that comes up and, it's, and you realise that actually, for a few people, <laughs> quite a few people of our generation, it did have quite a big impact. It's easy, it's, it's kind of easy to forget it. 
It's true, actually. I think people, I think we forget, that, you know, when, when you're an artist, you're quite vulnerable, I think, and you, you, you very much think about your new work and you think you want people to keep liking you and like everything you do and like the latest thing you've done. But I think actually, a lot of people kind of make, probably make the kind of reasonable assumption in their head of going, yeah, but we all, we all agree that all Joe's first album is really great and mm. that was a really big album for that decade, shall we say. I, I feel like maybe after having children and meeting parents who grew up with our album I think it's had a a bigger effect on me just the gravity of that album and and actually it being an album that has accompanied people through some of their most enjoyed years and then and as a result it's become quite timeless and actually I've, I've had a few friends that I've made recently being a parent that have talked about an awesome wave and how much of a huge influence it's had on their lives and they look back on it and it takes them to that period of time in their life where they may never be that happy in that unique environment whatever they were doing whether they were traveling whether they were going to university whether they were meeting their partner for the first time but it's like this really timeless association i think i'm only absorbing it now 10 years on when i'm going through this whole new nostalgia trip with having a child as well and um I realise it's a really important body of work for a lot of people who have similar experiences to us. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's the same for you, but I mean, I still, it's still pretty normal for me to get a DM on Instagram, just someone thanking me for being part of that. And, you know, also, yeah, for some people, yeah, really sort of like lovely, happy type. But some people are literally like, that record saved my life. You know, like that yeah. happens as well. And you're like, wow. And definitely a lot of other musicians. I get a lot of other musicians being like, that really changed the way I thought about music. It's funny because that's the biggest win when a fellow musician tells you something like that to your face about that work. And actually you realise you don't spend any time with other musicians talking about their work. Like you only hear like critics talking about your work or like comments under YouTube videos of people like saying things or like, you know, Reddit accounts. Like you're all drawn to the areas where you'll probably find the most forked, tongued, the most negative stuff. And negative yeah. sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. reviews. But actually, when you talk to musicians, they all come from a much better place where they know what it's like to release work and they know what it's like to be scared of the work you're releasing. How was it for you playing at the Brixton gig? It was mad. I mean, I think I was very worried that I was going to get nervous. I was pretty sure I had the parts down because I'd practiced them so much. And then when I got to side of stage and I knew I was going to go on in a few songs, my legs just started shaking. And it was a really different experience because I think that usually if you're playing a set, you're going to be on for 40 minutes or an hour. So any adrenaline you've got, you can kind of use it, like redistribute it into the performance. And then, you know, by the time you come on stage, you're not too adrenaline-y. But because I was only on for two songs, yeah, two songs, I don't really remember the time on stage, but I just remember being really, really shaky. It was very, it was true. I mean, it went extremely quickly for me as well. It was like, it was like you came up and just went, went back down immediately. But it was very nice. I mean, it really, you know, it was the first time we've all played together in like nine years or something. It was lovely. I'm really glad you said yes to it. And it's funny because, you know, I don't think you'd picked up a guitar for like eight no. years. No, So no. you left, left the band and then... Uh, left the band and left guitar. Left guitar. And that was important for me as well because it was like, oh, maybe I do like the guitar again. Maybe I should start doing stuff with this. Yeah. Um, uh, have you done? Have you done since? I've done a little bit, yeah. But it's funny because you'd spent like a lot of time working for that part, and so we were playing Taro, and um, I completely missed my cue. Oh yeah. Which just, which was essentially just silence. Yeah. Because it's this big riff that leads into the final chorus. It's like down, 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 down,
which is about three seconds of silence. Yeah. I remember you looking at me almost like a, you know, when a, a deer senses a predator. You looked up at me like, where, where is it? Where's the thing you're meant to play? Yeah, yeah. And I just sort of shrugged my shoulders. So it's like, <laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> you know? Oh, we don't do that bit anymore. Did yeah. you <laughs> I just thought it was so funny because like, these are two, like, two songs that you're coming on to play and it's a really big moment for you and then I just fuck it up. But equally, I don't, I don't actually care. No, you're not like, fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, it's true. The guy who plays it on stage every night that made the biggest mistake of the song. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Sweet. Will was such a key part of the band's foundation, remains one of our best friends, and it was really fun to hear his memories of that time. We appreciate him helping us to get those early demos from episode two as well. Nice one, mate. Episode five features a different perspective on an awesome wave from our friend and longtime producer, Charlie Andrew. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>